This is the Beaver Tales Podcast with Josh Wharton, who has covered Oregon State athletics since 2013. Well, I hope you love history here at Oregon State, especially with the Beaver baseball program and the city of Corvallis, because we've got a treat for you today. A pair of guests on the Beaver Tales podcast, Dow Poling and Ron Dyer. Now, first, Dow Poling played for Oregon Agricultural College back in the 50s, graduated in 1956, and even grew up in Corvallis. He's basically lived here his whole life. A long history in Corvallis, his grandfather is the namesake of Poling Hall. Now, Dow Poling went on to stay on faculty at Oregon State throughout the 70s, 80s, and 90s. He was a teacher, education, physical education, and an advisor. In fact, one of the student athletes he advised was Ron Dyer. Ron played in the late 70s, early 80s under head coach Jack Riley. Ron went on to become a huge Beaver fan. He's a season ticket holder, even has a house in Corvallis, in large part just to come back and watch games. He's now back in his hometown of Warrington, up in northwest Oregon. He spent uh, his teaching career in the Portland area, Tigard High School, Tualatin High School, a few different schools, did some coaching as well, including uh, some overlap with the Rutschman family. So that story will come up. It worked out perfect to talk with the two of them. I had already scheduled a time to talk with Dow Poling at his home in Corvallis to do a little socially distanced interview, six feet apart, actually more like 10 feet apart, wearing masks the whole time. And then Ron happened to call me and said, hey, I'm in town if you want to chat. And I said, well, I'm talking with your old advisor tomorrow. And so we just did all three of us kind of separated across the room and just sat a microphone in front of all three of us and uh, chatted for a, a good while. Real briefly, before we get to this conversation with Dow and Ron, I want to mention Lamplight Creatives, where they can help you and your business with any marketing needs you may have. And I was scrolling through their website and the team of employees they have, and I was really impressed with the wide variety of uh, backgrounds they have. They had you know, about 15 different employees with photography backgrounds, graphic design, branding, social media. A lot of them are local and went to Oregon State, so you'll be supporting a local company and doing some amazing work and helping your business get more exposure online, increase your digital presence get your website updated and looking real fresh all of that you can find through lamplight creatives their link in the description all right here is dow polling and ron dyer we start with dow and a memory about his coach you probably know it's now goss stadium at coleman field is the name of the stadium well coleman field named after ralph coleman head coach when dow polling was playing there in the 50s so here is dow polling starting off with a memory about ralph coleman Ralph was a, a really nice guy. In those days, if you're, if you're talking about the coaching aspect of it, uh, the people on the roster were not what you would call five-star athletes. Uh, they, they were mostly homegrown kids. And Ralph, I think probably, I don't know, what is the scholarship, are there 11 now? 11 and a half. 11 and a half. I don't recall what it was back then, but my, my freshman year I was on uh, uh, a quarter of something and it was like uh, $30 a, a, a month, you know. And, and to do that, we used to have to go out and, and uh, work under the grandstand of old Bell Field for pop somebody and pick up the, you know, the garbage after football games. But Ralph was down, down to earth kind of guy. And uh, I, I'm pretty sure that, you know, we all, we all really liked him. I'm, I'm, I don't really know uh, how he would stand up uh, with today's coaching because you know, he didn't have any more background than, than, than what a lot of us had. And the other coaches in the conference uh, were probably the, the same way. So there, and, and the facilities were rather limited. Uh, we had no, no uh, fall practices by, of any kind at all. We worked out several times during the, the winter in uh, what is now McAlexander Fieldhouse. We used to, we used to call it the Armory. Uh, very poor lighting, uh, uh, floor, floor sawdust and things like that. But the people that played for Ralph really enjoyed him, and I, I really did. And as, as, a, as my boss for later on when I came on faculty, uh, uh, he really he had our backs all the way. And I, I've never heard anyone say anything on a negative tone about Ralph Coleman, never. For many years, the baseball field was known as Coleman Field. It's now Goss Stadium at Coleman Field. <laughs> when you were playing for Ralph Coleman, 
what then? I, I think it was just the baseball field. We, we didn't, uh, when we played at Oregon, we would say well, we're going to go down to the Oregon field. And they would probably say the same thing when they came to, to, to Corvallis, uh, just the baseball field. It was not named after anyone. There was nothing to name anyone after that was available. We had four bases, no outfield fence, uh, uh, probably a high school grandstand on the third base side, and that, no lights, and that was the extent of it. The stadium that's now Goss Stadium at Coleman Field was built in 1999, or upgraded, and mm -hmm. it was Coleman Field. Do you know for how long, I mean, this, the stadium that you had played in in the 50s, how much had it changed from the 50s to 99, especially the grandstand and the things surrounding the field? Did it look pretty similar for those 40 years? Yes, I, I believe it really did. You know, uh, there, I don't, I'm sure that there, there was no concerted effort to go out and, and find a backer uh, like, like many of the things are, are being sponsored by now. So without maybe, I know that there, there, the lights never changed and uh, uh, when Gene Tanselli was the coach, uh, very, very little in the way of uh, advancement for, for the facilities, I'm sure of that. So when I ask you about what the stadium looked like, it's, it, it's the same answer for you in the 50s as it was in the 90s. So what, what did it look like in terms of the grandstand, the stadium, the field itself? What, what was kind of the defining qualities of Coleman Field? <laughs> well, probably that at, at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, the train would come by. <laughs> but there was, there was no outfield fence at all. I can remember... Uh, my dad was playing with a group of, uh, of coaches uh, against L.H. Uh, uh, Gregory was the sports editor of, of the Gazette uh, Oregonian for many, many years. And he considered himself to be a pitcher. Well, he was an old guy and, you know, he, he wasn't a pitcher. But he would get together a group of people uh, uh, around the Portland area, coaches and, and one day he brought down a fellow that had pitched for the Air Force, or not the Air Force Academy, but uh, Army uh, and uh, Andy Fraley, and they played, they would play one game against Oregon State, and my dad was asked to play, <laughs> and he, he was not a hitter, but he hit a, a fly ball, a line drive over the shortstop head, and it rolled, and it rolled, and it rolled almost to where the street is that, that runs in front of McAlexander or uh, Fieldhouse now. And between outfielders and, and the grass was, was dry. And he, I think he finally made it into second base. But in those days, you could hit a, a, a line drive and it would go 300 feet maybe and roll and roll and roll. And you, there was no such thing as an inside the park home run because there were no outfield fences. And in those days, uh, I remember Gene Tanselli, well, probably just like uh, the coaches today, spent a lot of time, uh, no groundskeeper necessarily. The head coach was the groundskeeper with the, some other players that would go out and work on things like that. But uh, very little, the budget, I'm sure, for, for baseball was, was considerably less than it is today. We were allowed two baseball bats. Uh, we we'd pick out our bats, you know, and we'd, we'd spend a little time picking them out. And if, if you broke them, uh, you'd have to beg, borrow, and steal from somebody else, you know, if you were going to hit again. Was it the same wooden bleachers from the time you played all the way through the 90s? Yes, yes. Like, like a high school. Like, like a high school uh, bleachers. Uh, and probably not, uh, no more than probably eight or ten uh, rows and I, I don't recall bleachers being on, on the first base side. Even, even when I was on the faculty, I don't recall that. Do you know when they put in the outfield wall? I'm trying to think if, if I was still on the staff at that time. I'm pretty sure that maybe at the end of Tanselli's tenure or the beginning of Jack's uh, is, is when, when the whole area w was fenced in. Since you were playing 77 to 81, Ron, at that point, did they have an outfield wall when you were playing? Yeah, we had, we had outfield fence, and we actually had bleachers on the first base side uh, when I got there. And there was a little little fence, oh, three-foot fence, down the right-foot field line. And uh, we had 
our backstop was basically chicken wire and uh you know it was interesting you know but we did we did have a fence and there was the taller fence actually in in left field because there was a parking lot which is still today what did the the grandstands at that point when you were playing what did that look like surrounding the field well uh pretty empty and uh <laughs> no uh the the there were wooden there were wooden bleachers and we had um both first base and third base and then behind the plate uh and they had the little little press box back then it was pretty small and uh that's pretty much what we had. And we had the bullpen in right field was right outside the, the little fence. And, and we had a little shed down the right field line, probably where like Casey's corner, Casey's corner is now. There was a little shed that we had a lot of our stuff in. So to compare what you had when you were playing there, what it looked like to see the stadium now and the fans showing up, how, how can you compare those two pictures? It is so awesome. To be a, uh, in fact, I'm a season ticket holder to come to the, the ballpark now and just watch how things have, have turned, and uh, you know, on a nice day we used to get some a good good crowd, especially if it was Washington State and Bobo Brayton, uh, all the all the guys would come out, uh, fraternities and everybody else. We'd have some crowds in. We we did have a few people in the stand, but uh, a lot of them were either your girlfriend, your family, and everybody else. But it, it is so nice to come to the ballpark now and to see the facilities. It's, it's just, it's great, because you're right on the, on the field, and that's, that's what all the ballplayers say, how close you are, the fans are to the, to the players. And, you know, we had, uh, we had tarps that we always had <laughs> to pull and everything else like that, and these guys, no, there's no tarps. There's a tarp on the mound, maybe, and somebody else will come and put it on. But we had basically tarp crews and everything else that we would come and put the tarp. We'd look over at Mary's Peak. If you saw the clouds over Mary's Peak, you had about 20 minutes of ball of playing, and then the rains were coming. Mm -hmm. Baseball in the Pacific Northwest is so difficult, especially at that time without the Astro Church and the facilities. It, it, it is so different compared to Los Angeles or Florida. It, it's crazy to me how a program from the mid Willamette Valley became as big as it was, considering, I mean, you saw what it was before all the, the technology and stuff. Well, it's, it's interesting is because we didn't know any better. We just, we would play in it and, you know, other teams would come in and they'd, you know, complain and stuff. But mostly when I was playing, we played uh, in the NORPAC and, and things like that. And everybody sort of knew that. And you were just, you were tough kids that wanted to play baseball and playing for Jack, you better be a tough kid and uh, you better like the game of baseball because you're out in the elements. It was, uh, it was trying at times, but it also, it built, built character. So going back to, to playing for Coley a little bit, there's a, a fun story I'd like to hear you recall, Dow, of playing a little bit of outfield. Normally you were an infielder, but you got a chance and some playing time in the outfield. What, what was the story there and how did that happen? You really want to hear that? Okay. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, it was, it was my sophomore year and uh, we had a pretty good, pretty good ball club and the infielders, a uh, uh, little shortstop from uh, East Coast, uh, no chance for me there. Uh, second baseman, Chuck Fisk from Portland, well, well established. So before we opened the season, and at that time, uh, it was the Northern Division, uh, Oregon, Oregon State, Washington, Washington State, and Idaho. And uh, Coley called me into his office, and uh, I sat down, and he reached into his desk and, and pulled out this publication and it stated how to play the outfield, and it was by Stan Musial, and it was sponsored, I believe it was by Wheaties. And he told me to take that home that night and look at it and read it. And the next day I started in right field. And you know, there's the old adage, uh, the ball will find you. About the second or third hitter for, I can't recall which ball club it was, I think it was Idaho. There was a line drive in right center. And you know, there, there are ways that outfielders learn to run so that the, they're not running on their heels and the ball isn't, isn't wobbling in, in your eyesight. 
And I, I, I made the catch, but I thought, if I don't catch this, it's going to hit me in the face. And that was the only put out I made in, in my tenure in the outfield. <laughs> but uh, in, in those days, times were different. Uh, when we come off the field, we used to throw our gloves off, off, off the field. If you were an outfielder, you, I, could, I could throw it out. I didn't have to carry it all the way in, you know. Uh, but that was my experience. The only time I ever played the outfield. Uh, when, I, when I played semi-pro ball after that, I was always an infielder. In the service, I was an infielder. In fast pitch, I was an infielder. So, do you remember what the Stan usual pamphlet brochure thing said, and try to, to rip through that thing and learn? It? No, no, I, I don't. I, if I had to take a test on it at that time, I would have failed it, I'm sure. Uh, and, and the real tough thing was throwing from the outfield. I had never had to throw from outfield to second base. I didn't know. I think I, I could get it in there on two hops the first time I, I threw the ball, but. Uh, we won the ball game, but it wasn't anything that I did to make it make it occur. So, well, your family has a rich Oregon State background, dating to your father and even your grandfather. Tell me a little bit about how your family first got involved at Oregon State and all the rich history even before you came around of how your family was intertwined with Oregon State College probably at that point. Well, it was Oregon State Agricultural College at at at. at, at that time in World War I when my grandfather, who was a Presbyterian minister, uh, uh, was commissioned to, to start the YMCA for the uh, officers that would, uh, military service that would be going overseas to, to fight the Germans in World War I. And so that was the first experience with somebody in our family uh, being in Oregon State. Uh, uh, my grandfather had had his ministry in Albany, at, and uh, my dad grew up in, at Albany and graduated from Albany High School, then came to Oregon State as, as a freshman, uh, joined the Beta Theta Pi fraternity, uh, pitched for, I don't know who his coach was at that time, probably some assistant football coach and uh, as a rook, uh, and uh, then graduated from Oregon State, uh, eventually ended up on the faculty here in 1938. and. Uh, he retired uh, when I was in grad school at Illinois in 1970, I believe it was, or 71. Uh, so uh, I came to, to Corrales as a kid in 1938. I was four years old at that time. I've lived here off and on ever, ever since. And how did they come to name the dorm that's now known as Polling Dorm that I had friends living in in, in college? How did they come to name that after mm -hmm. your grandfather? Uh, I, you know, I have no idea why it was. It must have been uh, some service that he did at that time. Uh, I didn't even know there was a, uh, and it really is, is a hall, I believe, in, in the residence area. It's a section. It's not, not a complete dorm. Uh, uh, my dad never, other than the fact that, that my grandfather had been on the, on the staff uh, for, for a brief period in, in World War I, that's the story of that. The procedure is, has never been related to me. Interesting. So once you came to, to study at OSU, what was kind of your um, history with Oregon State and, and both post-playing? You spent a lot of years, about 30, 32, I think it was, from 64 to 96. Um, spent a lot of time staying in Corvallis and Oregon State. What, what were those years like for you, seeing the college grow around you, the, the departments grow and shift, mm -hmm. uh, what was that like? Well, I, I, I'd like to start with uh, when I got out of high school, if it's okay with you, in 56, or <laughs> no, in, in, in uh, 1952, the northernmost edge of Corvallis was uh, Corvallis High School. And uh, where we're sitting right now uh, was, was a field out in the in the in the country. So I, I, I you know, the, the town has obviously grown considerably. Uh, the schools that I went to, the junior high school, uh, burned our first first uh, week in high school or grade school, <laughs> excuse me, junior high school, and we were the only class that went six years to Corvallis High School. Uh, we spent our our seventh grade and eighth grade years there, and then also. Uh, the the our, the rest of our our career, the young kids uh, when our school burned down would go to school the first half of the the day and then the high schoolers would go the second half or vice versa. Uh, uh, 
the, the, the facilities that, that we had as, as uh, athletes growing up at, at Corvallis High uh, uh, are, are no longer available. Our, our football field uh, uh, was on the, the same site as the new one is, but it, it went a different direction. Uh, our, in 1948, our first uh, baseball game was played at what, what is now called, I guess, Taylor Field, and then at Hanson, something rather, whatever it is right now, uh, with an all-dirt infield, no outfield fence, no lights. Uh, so uh, that's, there's a lot of water under the bridge right now, but uh, there's also a lot of time. When you think about what Corvallis was like, you spent essentially your whole life here. Uh, do, what are the kind of the main ways that it's different now, especially not just the, the buildings and the streets and the, you know, what it looks like physically, but the people that are here. Do you think it's the same, that, that the people are similar, or has, has it changed in terms of the culture of Corvallis and who lives here? Well, excluding this pandemic year, uh, the main difference is uh, uh, about 15,000 students. And uh, uh, when, when I went to school here and, and started in, in 1952, I think we probably had like 5,000, if maybe that many. The, the fraternity system and sorority systems were really strong at that time. Uh, resident halls were fairly, you know, established, but not to the extent that they are today. But the, the large proliferation of, of young students with automobiles uh, in the community all the time. This street, we used to, when we first came here uh, in uh, 1964, we could play ball with our kids out in the street. Uh, today we can't park on the street and it, it's become uh, a, a freeway essentially because it's, it goes from Highland all the way up to Kings Road without a stoplight. But uh, uh, it's just, well, it's, it's the natural progression of, of what, what has occurred in, in, in this century. So, uh, uh, but I, I would not change a, a thing about it. Corvallis is a fantastic place to, to live and, and to bring your children up, so. Who are some of the, the people that you interacted with most in Oregon State, whether it be people, other faculty that you taught classes with, administrators, uh, coaches that you spent time with, the people that, that you respected the most, uh, that you, you like to talk about and, and had some mm -hmm. good memories with? Who are some of the, the people that stand out to you? Well, probably several right off the top of my head were colleagues in our department, but also coaches. First, first one, Gene Tanselli. I, uh, as a young boy growing up, uh, I followed Gene uh, when I was in high school. I followed his career at Oregon State. And very few people know that he, he wore a size seven shoe on his left foot and a size nine on his right foot. He'd had, had some, some trouble with that. Uh, it didn't deter him at all. Uh, I, I would watch him play infield. He was a shortstop. He would, he would go to his, in the hole, knock, knock the ball down on a play that nobody would get a glove on, and they'd give him an error. You know. But Gene was uh, tenacious, and I had an opportunity to, to go down to um, Arizona with him his first year as a coach because he didn't have an assistant. He had, had no help at all, and he needed somebody to, to, to keep score and to throw batting practice. I said, as, as, as a member of our faculty, I thought, that would be great. And the other thing was, they were not allowed at that time to compete in, in baseball until the end of winter term. There was nothing going on in the fall. And the trip was to go to uh, Arizona and, and have a three-game series with Arizona State and some other clubs that were down there because of, of the weather. And he had a crew of, of, I don't know how many scholarship athletes he had. He had three pitchers that I, I can recall. One of them, a, a young man by the name of Forsh, uh, who ended up uh, pitching in the major leagues. Uh, and it was a two-day bus trip down there. Uh, played three games against Arizona State, who had already played 25 games. Won two out of three against them with his pitching staff of Forsh, 
a young kid from uh, Seaside, uh, Clive Benson, and then a, a fellow from Portland by the name of Jack Humphrey. Couldn't, couldn't play against anybody else because we only had three pitchers. Uh, Mike Markham, who I'm sure you might remember his exploits as a baseball player and a basketball player, it was a catcher, ended up with a sore arm because he'd had no preseason training. And uh, I followed Gene's uh, career, and he went in, I went into the service, came out uh, with my wife uh, when I was going through officer training school, and watched the, the first game that Brooks Robinson ever played as a, as a minor leaguer. Brooks Robinson and Wayne Causey, I believe their names were, they were signed. They were playing against the San Antonio team. We went to see it. They were playing the Tulsa Oilers, playing third base for Tulsa, Gene Tanselli. Wait, you're telling me Gene Tanselli, former Oregon State coach, played in the first ever minor league game that Brooks Robinson played in? Uh, that's that's what I'm. That's it, it worked out that way. I I wasn't thinking about that. You know, we we went we went to see this this phenom coming in, and and there was one of my idols that was playing with the Tulsa Oilers. Uh, yeah, it was it was it was amazing. The other the other fellow uh, lived right across the street from us when we first came on staff. Came on with with me, Bill Harper, and uh, Bill came on. Uh, had a very successful career at Roseburg uh, with baseball and basketball. Came on, became the, in addition to uh, teaching on our faculty, was the freshman baseball coach, the freshman basketball coach. Then, after two or three years, uh, uh, was, was selected by uh, Philadelphia Phillies to become a regional scout. And is, is best known for signing uh, Ryan Sandberg, who obviously uh, went to the Hall of Fame. Uh, both really great guys, both great Oregon Staters, both ended up their whole careers here in Corvallis. Uh, so those were the, the two people that, that I, there, there were tons of other colleagues, but those were two that, that you know, I, I, I lived close to all the time and, and really had tremendous respect for them. When you stayed at Oregon State, you graduated in 1956. Mm -hmm. So you continued to see the remainder of the, the Ralph Coleman years. You saw the Gene Tanselli years. You were mm -hmm. basically all the way through the Jack Riley years because mm -hmm. you retired in 1996. Right. So that would have been the second year of Pat Casey, in fact. So you basically got to see all the coaches, and I'm sure mm -hmm. you stayed at least somewhat in touch with the program oh, yeah. watching through Pat yeah. Casey and, and to now. What stood out to you of watching the evolution of Oregon State baseball from when you played in the 50s? Oh man, it's just like night and day, night and day. I mean, these uh, the young men that, that, are, that are playing right now, uh, the coaches, the expertise that they, they've brought to the program, uh, their, their assistant coaches, uh, uh, the, uh, I, I, I marvel at, at how, many, how many young guys they have on their squad. Uh, and, and a lot of them are, are homegrowners, but I, I just noticed the other day the, uh, the commitments for, for next year. About six pitchers, I believe it was, something like that. Three left-handers uh, coming from Chandler, Arizona, with our, our new coach that, that's come in, who I really enjoyed watching his, his, his play. Uh, it can't be any better than that. If they were on a dome and they could play at 90 degrees, maybe that would be better. But uh, if I were to give awards out, it's, you'd have to give them 10 thumbs up for the progress that each man has made and his contribution to, to, to the program at Oregon State. Uh, uh, if we could just get a few more Ron Dyers now, uh, it would work well. But, but no, I, uh, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I've always been proud to be a beaver. Uh, my wife graduated from Oregon. Uh, we sometimes go at it a little bit, but uh, I can't wait for the next time we have a baseball season and we're able to take that series against the Ducks. <laughs> Speaking of watching Beaver baseball after your own playing career, for you, you've, Ron, you've stayed very much a giant Beaver fan. You were, I think, even there in Omaha in 2018, right? So what was that like to see from, from 81? A little more recent than now, it's still a lot of evolution of Beaver baseball since then. What, what stands out to you from the rest of the Jack Riley years to Pat Casey? 
Well, probably the the most important thing is Jack Riley kept baseball. I was in the era where they were dropping baseball, and Jack Jack would not. He just would not let it happen. He would go in there and he would just battle, and just tell them it's not happening on my watch. And uh, I think everybody is appreciative of that. And uh, and watching how Jack fought for the fought for the program, and he did that for all his, for his players also. I mean, you know, he would go to bat for you, you know. And uh, and watching it going back to the World Series, it's like. Uh, a bucket list, a dream come true, uh, a baseball person's. If you've not been there, you need to go there. You know whether your team's there or not. It's just, it's just great. And I got to do it with some uh, former ball players that went back with me: uh, Bob McNair, Mark Peisker, Jerry Young, and myself. We all got to go back there, and it was just, it was a blast. When I talked with Jack, we talked about the two times that the program actually was disbanded briefly. It never missed a season. They always managed to bring it back before the, the spring happened. I'm not sure exactly what years those two were. I'm guessing the 80s. You finished in 81. Do you remember the story of the program, both the times it nearly got cut and then did get cut? And was that shortly after your time? Do you, how much do you know about those? It was when I was there, yes. it was, uh, And Oregon was cutting their program. It was the Title IX. It was all the different things was coming into effect, and and uh, you know Jack just was a bulldog, and you know and said, you know, guys, here's what it is. But he, you know, he never really made us aware of the total situation. Just that here's what's coming down the pipeline. Um, we're still playing, all that stuff. So, uh, you know. Hats off to Jack for that, you know. So did he try to kind of keep that away from you so that you wouldn't have to worry about your own program getting cut? I think he was he was worried for the program and the ball players, you know, because he brought us in, he wanted us to be able to play and he just loved the game and it was about playing and yeah, you know, he he definitely made sure that it happened. Do you remember any specific stories of what he would do? to save the program, both the sort of, you know, the, the grounds crew sort of things to save money or he'd help with the stadium, plus the, the work he'd do with the administration of going into meetings and that sort of thing. What do you remember about what he would do to defend the program? Well, first, you'd also have to go back to his wife, Jean. I think she did more laundry than anybody else in the, in the history of baseball and made sure we had the things that we needed. Jack would do all the little things, and we were, as players, you know, we were. We had uh, Tom Moore was our grounds man, great guy, uh, but uh, we did a lot of things. We would put tarps on and off during between classes. If you saw it was going to be raining or something like that, you just, you, you knew what, you knew you had to be there. And these guys now, I know that they get up early morning for weights. We didn't have that. You know, but uh, we had to where we had to take care of the field. You know, there was no turf. There was no uh, anything like that. So uh, we spent a lot of time getting the field ready to be able to play. And it was it was uh, it was our it was our stadium or our not stadium, our field. And you took ownership in it. And uh, I know Jack was instrumental in getting Pat Casey. Uh, who's a, he, Pat's a, a year younger than I and actually played against him in a Babe Ruth All-Star game, you know. So uh, I've known Pat forever, and he's a very competitive. Him and Jack are very similar in a lot of, in a lot of ways. Yeah, well, what was your impression of Pat and the intensity he would have and how he would use that intensity in coaching? How did you see that? Well, that's one of the things that I always tell all my friends is I have my season tickets where I can see the dugout and when there would be a play made on the field and if the player didn't want to see Pat, he would find where Pat was and go to the other entrance into the field and they would meet in the, in the middle of the dugout and have a conversation. And I always, I always uh, was intrigued of what was going on during those conversations, you know. But uh, no, Pat was... A great 
competitor uh, on and off the field. I mean, on the field, between the lines, you, you, you know, you'd want him on your side. You went to war, that's who you wanted in the, in the bunker with you. You know, uh, he was, he was going to give you everything. And uh, the players knew it. And uh, just watching and observing how he let his players play also, you know, uh, as a just a high school coach, I'm not saying I have any expertise that they have, but uh, it was always intriguing and fun to watch the little details that he, his team would do from bunting the ball to the base running to the backing up. Uh, all the little things, and little things in baseball create victories. When you were playing, speaking of Dow and, and getting to, to interact with him, what, what was a memory you had learning from a fellow Oregon State baseball player who had been there about 20 years before you? Uh, you know, what, what stood out to you from the things that you learned from, from Dow or the things that he did for you? Well, you know, I was not a, a five-star or anything like that. You know, I... I, I did get a partial scholarship, so uh, we had that in common, and and he just told me to always just hang in there uh, and just do your best. Things will work out, and uh, you know he always when I left his office, always it was always uh, yeah okay, let's go on, let's come on, let's go again, and let's go to practice, let's do everything else, you know uh, where some guys. Some guys would leave programs, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't me, you know, and I, uh, I was fortunate enough to, to hang in there and have some great buddies. Um, you know, my wife, Linda went to Oregon state. We actually, uh, dated in high school, but we both went to Oregon state and, and I got married my last year, uh, when I was still playing ball. So it was great, great memories. And, wasn't going to trade it. Ron said he wasn't a five-star, but he's one of the very few people in Oregon State baseball history to have five base hits in one ball game. And he's also very modest, but uh, five base hits is, is truly outstanding. Do you recall the story of five base hits in one game, Ron? I Sorry, Ron. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do. I actually, uh, I had five hits, and... Um, I got up my sixth time and I hit a ball down the left field line and it was fouled by just a few inches and all I just saw all the teammates jump up because they knew that I had five hits and that would have been the record all by myself and and uh, then but like they say the mighty Casey struck out on a changeup so it was a great pitch and the guy got me but you know it was a it was fun day I'm excited to be a part of that, uh, to be able to be, you know, a part of Oregon State. It's been awesome. And uh, I would like to go back to the 18 season. And uh, a good friend of mine that I taught with is uh, Randy Rutschman, and that's Adley's dad. So I've known Adley for many, many years. In fact, he, he went to the same uh, daycare person, Lenny and Brian Hansen, that my kids did. So I've known uh, the Rutschmans forever, and you're not going to find a better person. And Randy and Carol are just phenomenal parents. And uh, it was always fun to be at, at games with uh, the Rutschmans, and, and uh, Adelaide's just a class act. That's, I mean, if you were to say Oregon State baseball, the first person you better be thinking of is Adley Rutschman. So not his I mean, grandfather. Yo, Ad, yeah, exactly. In yeah, fact, he's from my era. Yeah, Ad, in fact, Ad, I was going to go to Linfield and play for Ad both uh, football and baseball before Jack offered me something. Oh, really? Yeah, and uh, so uh, it, it's, it's a great connection there. Did you get to know Ad Dow? Did you, did you ever meet him or get to uh, know him? Well, I used to play against him. Uh, it, it, we, uh, when I was still in college, we. We didn't have any pro ball clubs other than the Portland Beavers, and there was a, the Salem Senators, I believe they were like in a Class A league, but semi-pro baseball was really big in Oregon, uh, and uh, I played for the Albany Alcos, and we had a few younger guys, but a couple guys that had played uh, double A ball and, you know, back and forth, but Adley, 
the grandfather and Linfield had their own ball club and they were sponsored by Drain, Drain, Oregon. They were the Drain Black Sox. And uh, Del Corsi, who was a pitcher, uh, and, and Rushman and Roy Helsler and, and that whole group, they, they played, they played in, 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 that, in our league and we, we'd play like a four-game series, you know, against them. And we kept thinking, you know, Linfield, Linfield, uh, they had one heck of a good ball club for many, many, many years. Uh, but that's where playing semi-pro ball, you really learn how to play baseball because you're playing with and against uh, uh, guys that have had, had had a cup of coffee in the minor leagues or something like that. And to me, that's where Roy Nicely, who was a shortstop for San Francisco Seals, played with the North Bend Coos Bay Lumberjacks. And they, were, they had four or five guys that had played in the Coast League. And he took this 18-year-old kid and said, you, when, you, when you do this and that, you have to set yourself this way. Nothing that we'd ever heard of before, you know. So you'd be like a lap dog following those guys around after they beat you, you know. But it was, the Reichman family is, is truly aces. And I'm so happy for Adley. You know, I can't wait to see him in a major league game, ball game. And so you, you taught with Randy, where, where was the connection there? At, at Tigard High School. Gotcha. And he, we uh, coached together. Uh, we coached uh, some football and some some baseball. We we both taught under uh, coached under Tom Campbell, who's a basically a legend in in Oregon baseball. Uh, he great man, and but uh, so Randy and I, uh, Randy's a year younger than I. In fact, it was against Linfield that I got my five hits, and Randy was a catching. Oh, really? Yeah. So uh, it was. Pretty nice for me to be able to do that, but at the same time with the Retchman family, and you know, just like I said, class act, and being back in Omaha to watch how Adley and uh, and and Casey and, and the pitching coach Zetgeski, they handled their ball players, Pat Bailey. Those guys were just so much uh, in tune with each other. You knew what was going on, and then to watch how they they scrapped together that last game or the second last game where the guys, who's this guy coming off the bench? You know, there were guys I've never seen before and they were out in the outfield running bases or whatever else. They just knew their players. And that's just a tribute to, you know, they deserve the national championship. When you had that five hit game, was Randy Rutschman the catcher standing right behind you for those five hits? Yes, he was. Yeah, and he'll always he'll always say, "Well, I probably told you all the pitches that were coming," and I always tell him that, "Well, if you did, why'd you throw me a changeup? I could have had number six. <laughs> when you think about the Rutschman family, what what do you remember about Adley being a kid? If you interacted with him much, or the type of uh, I don't know defining qualities that the Rutschmans have, the type of parents that they were, the sports background, and further, what stands out to you about the Rutschman family? It's interesting because. Uh, Adley went to Sherwood High School, and I was coaching at Tigard at the time. And when we played them in a, a summer game, uh, I believe it was a summer game, and Adley uh, uh, was DHing or something, and he was on first base, and we knew that he was going to be stealing. And so we throw a pitch out. He was the type of kid, he'd start his steal, he saw a pitch out, and he shut it down and came back. You don't see that in, in high school ball. I mean, Adley did so many of the little things that you never saw other kids do. And just his ability to score up a ball. And we were pretty fortunate against him to not give him a good pitch to hit. You know, we were smart enough to figure out, mm, he's not going to beat us. Let's have somebody else on that team beat us. And they were good, you know. They had Zach Taylor and they had a lot of good players. Uh, but the Rutschman family, uh, they always kept everything in perspective, you know, uh, good faith, Christian background. And, I mean, you know, um, they did just did things right. You know, and Carol, you want to know who's competitive in that family. Carol can golf. She is very competitive. So 
where Adley gets a lot of his competitiveness. Not necessarily, dad is competitive, but mom is very competitive and just a great person. She teaches, she was a math teacher, is a math teacher at Tigard High School. So I also, you know, we'd have different meetings and she was a Tigard student in the before. So I saw her as a student and as a uh, fellow math teacher. That's pretty cool that the number one draft pick in MLB and parents are just school teachers and competitive golfer and, wh and whatnot. It, it's I, I, that just seems really perfect for an or Oregonian family. It, it just seems good, you know. Exactly right. You're exactly right. If you were to say, you know, where's this Adley Rutschman? Where did he come from? And you drop those two people in there. You drop the apple down. That apple fell right by him. We've had so much fun talking. Let me ask one final question of the two of you, more on a, on a personal note of, um, I like to get into a little bit of what life has looked like since college and the life lessons that you took away, especially lessons that you may have learned from a coach or during your time in college or the things that you learned since then. Sometimes I phrase it as, what advice would you give yourself from when you were coming out of college based on all the things you've been through since then? Um, or, or the things that have stood out to you that you've learned, how you've become a different person since you finished college, whether that's five years ago or 60 years ago. But for you, let's start with you, Dal. Uh, what would you say is a major way that you've changed as a person since you finished college in 1956, the sort of thing that you may not have known then, but you know now and you grew in matured as a person? What stands out to you? Well, I, I think probably initially uh, you get you get through your four years you think well that's it I've made it and you get out in the real world and you know that that was the first step so at my at my age I hope that that I've broadened my horizons I've had the opportunities to do that uh, uh, certainly the the new sophisticated environment that we have there are all sorts of opportunities out there if, if you're willing to take the chance and put the effort into it. Uh, the one thing I will say is that both my wife and I are probably the most illiterate, up-to-date people with computers, and, and, but we choose, we choose not to be, you know. Uh, uh, but it, it, it has just been, I, I'm, I'm amazed at, at the progress that, that has been made in the X number of years uh, over our our career, we think that I'm sure both of us both of us have benefited from the increases in technology and 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 the environment and and things that are that have occurred, but you still have to put in the effort, and uh, uh, at the end of the day, it, it would always be nice to say, I'm a little bit better today than I was yesterday, and. That's just being around the kind of people that, in a university environment that all of us have had an opportunity to do. Uh, Corvallis is such a fantastic place to live, to enjoy life, to bring up your children. Uh, you just need to be thankful for that each and every day. I appreciate that. Well, what about you, Ron? The, the life lessons you've learned, that maybe the advice you'd give yourself back then, if you could, if you could tell yourself something that you had learned since then, what, what about you? Well, I was always one that would, uh, I only knew 110%, you know, when I was playing and doing most everything. So I, I, I believe in that. And I know that uh, some kids feel like they're entitled to things nowadays. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry that those kids are that way, but it's so rewarding when you get around kids that, that really want things. And I, 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 I enjoy so much helping anybody that wants to get better in, uh, for instance, baseball, but just everyday life. And in sports for me was a big part of my life. I had someone once tell me that some people need baseball and baseball needs some people. And when he told me that, and he says, you need to stay in baseball for me. And if I can give back anything at all to youth, families, anybody, and help them, 
I'm all for that. It was, it's interesting that Dow said that because I had a, I always told my players, are you better today than you were yesterday? That was one of my things that I would say all the time to them. Can you look yourself in the mirror and to do the right thing? And I think that, you know, for me also, just doing the right thing to try to help kids along, it was, it's something that I try to, to still do and, and live by. And, and I, I think it's now you just try to, try to be more productive in the short amount of time, you know, and that's, that's probably one of the biggest things that I would say and, and keep my, my uh, faith background and everything like that. Uh, and enjoy, enjoy the moment because you don't know when your moment is up. So I, I truly try to do that. I try to try to keep in contact with some of the, the guys that I, you guys that I played with or, or like the Fullings, uh, great people. So that's for me. I, I enjoy it and I appreciate being able to do this with you. And, uh, I, I, I do. I, I love Beaver baseball and Beaver sports and, and go Beavs. Well, thanks so much for both of your time and talking about the history of Beaver baseball. It's cool to see the two of you be connected and to, to talk with both of you. So thanks so much, Ron and Dell. Thank you. Well, that was pretty fun to see two different eras represented, but then the connection between the two with Dow having been Ron's advisor years ago and stayed close ever since. Ron even said he had lived in Dow's house for a little while after college and uh, pretty cool to see that connection. Also struck me that how many of their memories involved not themselves, it wasn't them just talking about themselves the whole times, but the people who had impacted them. Uh, granted, that was kind of the topic of the conversation, but even stories like Ron's five-hit game against Linfield, I don't think he would have brought that up had Dow not uh, called it out and said, by the way, Ron's a guy with the record-tying performance with five hits, and Ron begrudgingly, but, but uh, you know, in a funny manner, did, did tell that story. And it was cool to hear Randy Rutschman was the catcher watching all that from a few feet away. So uh, that was pretty cool to hear and the Rutschman family connections as well. Uh, last thing before we go, I want to mention Old Mill Center. I mentioned them before, so I won't do a long spiel, but uh, hopefully just one more time you'll hear about their great work in the community, helping families, youth, kids. They do the preschool, uh, therapy, family counseling, youth counseling, intervention, uh, everything a community would need with people um, who may not have the help otherwise. And Old Mill Center relies on, uh, in part, donations from people like us. So there's a link in the description how you can get in touch with Old Mill Center right here in Corvallis. Upcoming, we stay with the history of Beaver baseball. We went from the 50s to the 70s slash early 80s today, just in one episode. Next episode, we'll jump to the 90s and the early Pat Casey era. The first four years, Pat Casey coached a third baseman on that roster, Ryan Leip, and a pretty good third baseman at that and a stellar professional career outside of baseball and, and business. Um, Ryan Leip has had since then. So a really fascinating conversation with Ryan Leip coming up next episode. Until then, I've been your host, Josh Warden. As always, hoping to be the next voice of the Beavs 30 years from now when Mike Parker retires. All right, until then, hope to chat with you again on the Beaver Tales podcast. Good night, everybody, and go Beavs.